You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and welcome back to part two with Craig Payton talking about his fascinating career. Craig, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks, Rick. It's good to be back. It's been fun. You know, in the early 80s, you did a lot of instrumental music to various success. You were just telling me before the taping that you would look at Billboard magazine and see a handful of tunes that you wrote right there on the charts doing very well. It's very different than music that you sing, which is also music that you produce. What's really the difference and why were you drawn specifically? Was it the the money that it was big at the time? Obviously, you enjoyed it. How did you develop this love of, of instrumental music? Instrumental music, meaning instrumental dance music, pop, or instrumental jazz fusion? I know you do both, but I was referring to your early 80s work, particularly in dance music. R&B. Well, again, I I worked with uh, Dan Hartman put me on the map with a big hit record called Vertigo Relight My Fire, and and then as a reward for making him a lot of money, he gave us use of his studio in his house in Westport, Connecticut for a month. So that's when I cut my first Fusion album, and we worked really hard on it, made an album we were proud of, got signed to Buddha Records and put it out. And it got good airplay, but sold modestly for those times. One day walking down the hall at Buddha doing radio interviews, a guy named Daryl Payne, who's a pretty big name in the R&B industry, came up and he said, you were on that Dan Hartman record, weren't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I got to get you in the studio producing. And I thought, well, I I played the vibe solo. I had nothing to do with the producing. But he felt just by proximity, because I'd been on a hit record, I could it would somehow rub off on the dance stuff. And good to his name, he dragged me in the studio. And the very first thing we wrote was a song um, I'm going to play you called It's All Right, using very, very early generation sequencers and keys. And I just enjoyed doing it. I was kind of in my apartment messing around with jazz fusion ideas. But when I'd work with a bona fide R&B producer, they would twist my idea and add a vocal to it. And the combination created kind of a new style. It was kind of a trial by fire. And you get a lot of great results sometimes when you're you're winging it in the studio. Yeah, like he told me right away. He said, make the B section the A section and let's make the A section the hook. And I didn't hear it that way. But then he threw down a lyric right there in my apartment. And the next thing you know, he had a singer named Will Downing uh, singing on it. And that thing went on radio within a month. So you all see this is how the sausage is made. Let's hear some of that sausage. Uh, What are we going to play? He named the group NV with the N and a V. And this first song is called It's All Right.
That's such a sound. I love that sound. The early 80s had those guys. It was very popular. Jan Hammer, even Herbie Hancock to some degree, and Vangelis. These were all your competitors, I guess. Harold Faltemeyer. What happened to this kind of music? Well, a lot of it went into soundtracks, like Jan Hammer did all of Miami Vice. Yeah, but um, what's going on with the equivalent today in dance music, electronic dance music? Where is it at? Has it evolved beyond our understanding and now it's just sound uh, i mean i listen to it and it doesn't have the same kind of soul that stuff back in the early 80s did not to my ear but I i'm not well versed in it ah, boy that's such a long subject oh my god <laughs> you listen to tracks on mary j blige or some of the the singers there's brilliant production but the 80s really influenced a lot of people and it shocks me that the 808 drum machine still being used 30 years later as a standard soundscape absolutely same with the oberheim synthesizers same with the fairlights the juno so yep so a lot of me goes just like with rock and roll there hasn't been a lot of evolution it kind of leveled off what i love now and i'm a big huge fan of hip-hop Huge fan of Kanye and, and the innovators that are really pushing the envelope as controversial as they might or might not be using samples because they're, they're forcing my ears to listen to atonality in a different way. Well, you've also raised a really interesting point, Craig. The influence that the early 80s had and is still feel it. The ripples are still being felt in music today. And people slag off the 80s as, you know, the era of the drum machine and the cheesy yep. keyboard sounds or whatever. But what I hear in some of your music, and, and you may disagree, is a little bit of Roxy music. And oh, Roxy God, music, yeah. I mean, I could tell, I heard something Absolutely. of yours where you were singing. And I thought, well, I could see a little Brian Ferry influence in your voice. And those guys were huge for so many people of that era and today. Well, people don't even know how influential Roxy music actually is. Thank God they were just inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, finally. Brian Eno and Bowie, they used the Fairlight extensively. So the idea of ambient textures and sequencer machine-like patterns... To me, it fits right into Gamelon music, Steve Reich, Phil Glass. I, I've always loved pattern-based music. Has always talked to me really loudly. And I had, I used to get attack interviews. I'd go on, you know, when Latitude was charting and we were doing a whole pile of interviews. And I thought they were going to compliment what we were doing. Suddenly somebody go, oh, you know, that Fairlight you're using is putting all those musicians out of work. And, you know, it's just it's playing samples stolen from drummers. And I'd be like, oh, God. And it, it was happening regularly. People thought it was like Satan's tool. And I would try to point out, you could kind of say that about a piano. I mean, we're not there clapping our hands and whistling. But, you know, people get really threatened by innovation. It's very funny. It's so true. And, you know, every topic that we're talking about, we could easily do an hour on. I think every fine point of every topic we could probably do an hour on. We're going to have to move on a little bit, but let's move on to something that I find very interesting about you. There's so many interesting aspects to your musicianship. One thing that I read somewhere is that you were also into doing jingles or you'd spent some time working on jingles. This, this is a particular interest of mine because as a songwriter, I like to try to challenge myself and I, I don't want to just write, you know, country songs or blues songs or this or that. I want to reflect everything that grabs my attention when I hear a great commercial, even wow, that was genius how, what they wrote. You know, your average person would miss out on that, but songwriters look at things a little bit differently. Not all of them write jingles. I, I, I did one one time for a taxi company and I, 
there was a local cookie company and I tried to write for them and they weren't having it. I thought it was a great song. I would have sold lots of cookies. <laughs> did, did you ever sell any jingles? I sold a lot of jingles. I didn't have your experience. I generally hated it. Music for me has always been really a spiritual experience. I think music comes from a deep place, and my responsibility to my music is to put out the absolute best I can do. And I did jingles for money. I, New York's expensive, and I had an expensive lifestyle, especially when I started flying airplanes. They would throw good money at you, and we were doing major jingles, and if you got on the vocal contracts, you got a pretty good payout continuously once, you know, we did Volvo commercials and Western Union commercials and Bird's Eye commercials. They paid well. Hudson Valley resident who I absolutely admire and love and who's a personal friend, Mike Maneri, had a, lived for many years in Woodstock, helped bring me into the jingle business. But frankly, and I don't care anymore, I'm old enough, I always felt dirty doing it. I always hated doing them. I would try to use not my best ideas because I didn't want to use my best ideas in that commercial context for something I didn't particularly love. So I had high conflict. As an aerial photographer, I'm completely opposite. I don't care who buys a cloud. So I'm very hypocritical that way. I'm just amazed at how a simple little melody can sell Doritos, you know? I mean, I don't care about the commercial aspect of it as much as I do the psychological aspect or the musical aspect. <laughs> when I hear something like by men and three notes and it. it sticks in your head and there's well, my, something fascinating about it to me. A guy that played violin with me for years, Michael Levine, who's a pretty big name out in Hollywood, got the gig for Kit Kat. Give me a break, Kit Kat. He wrote that, wrote that simple little thing and that made his whole career and he's got a mountain of movies and now he lives right down the street from Dr. Dre over in Hollywood. Wow. It's just out there two days ago. The, the universe is going to implode going from Dr. Dre to Barry Manilow. But Barry Manilow <laughs> it had could. A, a very successful career just as a jingle writer. He could have just been rich based on that. He did, you know, jingles for Stridex and K KFC, and he did uh, Wouldn't Wouldn't You Like to Be a Pepper too? That was him, Dr. Pepper. What was that one? Um, I'm Stuck on a Band-Aid, and a Band-Aid Stuck on Me. Very successful. Again, the universe did not implode when we jumped from Dr. Dre to Barry Manilow. Let's see what it does when we jump from Barry Manilow to James Brown. You worked with James Brown. I mean, that's very impressive. What was your experience working with the hardest working man in show business? <laughs> well, the bad news is I never worked directly with him. We made the album Gravity. I was in the studio for probably a month with Dan Hartman, uh, tracking, they call it. And a lot of times when you're doing production music, you're doing the bass, the drums, and the arrangement. And then after that, the vocals get laid on. And that was the case with James Brown. So it was fun to work on the tracks. It was fun to develop the ideas with uh, Dan because he had, at that point, James Brown had quite a bad reputation, had been in jail for assaulting his wife, and was kind of at a low ebb. And when Dan Hartman wrote Living in America, put James Brown back on the map. He was quite upset that a uh, pudgy, blonde uh, gay man from Pennsylvania was producing him. James wasn't happy about it, but the record company read him the riot act, and he was... He did what Dan told him to do. And it did right by his career. He even made the Rocky Four soundtrack, if, yeah. I, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they trusted Dan a lot. And James just kind of went with the program, disagreed with a lot of the lyrics and phrasing, but went with the program. And Dan really, that reignition of, of James Brown's career is also what got him the next the Tina Turner gig and a whole pile of other artists to follow. I love James Brown. I saw James Brown one time 
at some Jewish resort, and half of the audience was Jewish and the other half was black, and I was sitting in the middle in between them, scared. With Lenny Kravitz. With Lenny yeah. Kravitz. <laughs> we were sitting together, and Drake. And, and Drake. I think he's, he's the a, ambassador of both. He, he might be Canadian. I don't know. I, I, who are these guys we're talking about? <laughs> There's another guy that you did a little work with as well, and this is kind of near and dear to my heart. Any musician that's been working long enough in the Hudson Valley probably has their own story about him. He was somewhat of a staple of this area. I'm referring to the late, great Levon Helm. Oh, yeah. No, what was your experience with Levon? Besides completely admiring him to the point of being embarrassed, I had a production studio down in uh, Unionville, which is 20 miles south of here in Dutchess County. And we did a lot of work from for Japan. Quite an enormous amount of commercial work was coming in for TV commercials and for records. And quite commonly, we would hire pretty famous people. We hired Levon and Rick Helms, William Gallison, I'd mentioned before, harmonica player. We kind of had a whole litany of people that would come by and work on various projects. And a couple of times when they didn't have the time to come to my studio, we'd go over to Bearsville and we'd cut there. I particularly enjoyed working with Levon. There were always musical issues, depending on the tracks and how the tracks were being produced. Sometimes it was musically challenging for those guys. They weren't reading charts, and they you kind of had to feel your way through. Especially with Rick Danko, you had to you know work it bar by bar. I don't know. Levon just had a had a vibe, man. And when I would think of the weight and some of the band tunes, I'm sorry, I was a starstruck dude. I don't care how much time we spent in the studio. And he had that great smile, that effervescent smile <sighs> that only Levon, when he smiles at you, you just feel great. I opened for the band with my band many years ago, and I remember him punching me on the shoulder and saying, "Nice job, young man." And when Levon says that to you, it's, <laughs> it means the world to you. You know, you better believe it. He was a great man. You knew you were in the presence of greatness. It's hard to think of it as another normal day in the studio, even though you're grinding through the tracks and making sure you're laying stuff down correctly. Once we would get into the work ethic, it was uh, their professionalism was, was fun to be around. It was always a, a real a good time when they were part of the sessions. At this point in the show, I guess we're at the kind of median point in part two. I'd like to just turn it over to the guests to play something. You don't have to play it live. It's a guest's choice on what to listen to. Um, some of the music I do is not linear. It's in terms of a song, front to back, A-A-B-A. I really like ambient groove music. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of better ways to say it, but I don't necessarily even like tonality. I like working with texture, and I love music that allows me to drive in the car and listen to trucks going by or any other noise, and that somehow fits into the music because the ambient soundscape can contain it. So when I do underscore for film or, or television or for my own projects, I deliberately get away from kind of melodic structure and try to get more into just using sound as a palette. So this last piece, Blue Curve Zero G, I'm working with John Putnam and we're just kind of pushing some of the, the ideas of the whole album into that one motif where we're not really pushing it into a beat and everything. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Let's play.
have a lot of instrumental stuff, Craig, but you also have a lot of stuff with vocals. You're a good singer, too. And there's a certain ironic profaneness about, for, for lack of a better word, for somebody, uh, for a singer in particular, uh, to get esophageal cancer. But you have had it. You were diagnosed when? In 2005, 2006? When was that? Around the year 2000. You wrote a book about it, too, called Cloud Man. Cloud Man Surviving Stage 4 Cancer, A New Beginning. It was a profound experience. I was in my late 40s and was told by a doctor that I was inoperable and had less than two months to live. The The system had thrown me out and all the tests showed that my stage four cancer had um, spread. Basically, I was working. I was doing a lot of production work at the same time. So I was down in the Bahamas working for the Bahamian government doing um, video production marketing for them. And I took my family down and planned on finishing out my gig and staying there until it was over. One of the doctors who diagnosed me was a pilot like me and we had talked flying and liked each other. And he found me down there and talked me into coming back for an experimental program, which I decided to do. And I was a sole survivor of it. It was it was a pretty rough program and most of the guys died of heart attacks. How's your health today? It's it's good. It's good. I'm eighteen years out from that time when my boy was five and my only prayer was to see him get into elementary school so he'd remember his dad. And you got to do that. I just came back from LA yes today and I was just paragliding off the coast of San Diego with my boy, who's now in UCLA grad school. So I've gotten my prayers answered with quite a bonus. Congratulations. Wow. Congratulations. That's Thank a harrowing, uh, harrowing experience. How did that affect your music, if at all? It affected every aspect of, of my life. <clears throat> it <clears throat> it messes with your head a lot to be told you're going to die. And um, you just can't help but reevaluate the value of the things you do. And it caused <clears throat> primary shifts in some of my relationships uh, that were painful. But I realized I had to change my path. And changing my path was really hard. But I, I, I did. And I have, and my life is more fantastic now than I could even imagine. And we're all very happy that you've come through it, myself included, because you'll be around to make more music, and I hope I get to make music with you too. It's uh, it, Music is such a blessing, and we, we just don't understand what it is with sound. I mean, I love, I, I make probably better money doing photography, aerial photography. I, I love the beauty of the sky and the clouds. But there's something about sound and how it can connect people that's so profound and so mysterious. And I hope to be, and whether it's playing a farmer's market with Stephen Pegg or working with my dear friend Ben Herndon or doing a high-level production uh, in the city or for a film, it's just working with sound. Sound is magic. It sounds like you found an all-new piece after your recovery. Is that fair to say you've got a whole new outlook on life? I've always been very driven. And the problem with me is I'm a businessman. And I, I like earning a living. I like sticking my hand in a lot of different fires. And it gets me in trouble because right now I have more work than I, I want. 
And I want to just kind of be spacey, but I like being productive too. And I guess that's a conflict. Uh, the regular stuff of, of having goals, paying bills and all the rest, that comes back in after cancer pretty quick. You know, the magical feeling of survival only lasted me less than a year. But I try to remember as often as I can how fortunate I am to have the life I'm having. Tough writing a book? Almost impossible. My hand, if anybody listening that writes, I, I bow to you on my knees to you because I rewrote my book 60 times and I didn't even get close. It, I'm not a wordsmith and I certainly am not an author and I felt almost like I was breaking some terrible cult. Um, but luckily, Amazon lets you put any book you want up there, so I didn't have any gatekeepers, thank God. I hear it's pretty good. What made you write a book about it? I got pulled in so many directions after the cancer, some beautiful and some upsetting. I, I did everything on the list. I right away, in fact, I don't know if Ben mentioned it. I took Ben Herndon and we flew my plane to Baffin Island in the Arctic Circle on a kayak production I was working on. And I, I did a number of just crazy things to get, kind of get them off my back. But I kept getting pulled in so many directions, in particular emotionally and relationship-wise. I guess I just did the book to sort myself out, maybe an effort to explain myself, and then a little bit to talk about my trajectory as an artist. So, of course, I snuck in my music career and stuff like that. Well, I hope I get to read it at some point. I'm sure I will. I'm an avid reader. I would love to read it uh, one of these days soon. Well, I got it way down. I think it's only a buck on Amazon. I'd be very happy to email it to you anytime. Thank you. What is Earth Flight? I named my production company Earth Flight 25 years ago. It's just my all-purpose music, photography. It's the business side of my life. It's my business checking account. I started noticing a ton of traffic on my website out of the blue because I look at the metrics and I'm like, what the hell's going on? And the BBC had done a whole production of uh, birds flying and they named it Earth Flight without contacting me. Um, but they couldn't use earthflight.com since I own that. But it greatly increased my traffic. So I, I guess in a weird way, I'm kind of grateful to him. And I and I like I thought the production was nice. So sad that our time is ebbing away. This always happens on the show. It makes me so mad. I just want to stay and talk to you longer. But we've filled up two segments already. It's been really enjoyable. I want to go out with some music, though. Something that you're really proud of and something that is somewhat indicative of your heyday not that you don't have tons of stuff before and after that but let's go out with some quintessential craig payton
such a cool vibe. All this stuff has such a cool vibe. Uh, cool like you. Uh, what is this piece that we just heard, by the way? Um, it's called Spirit Gravity. When I was signed to Narada on MCA Records, it was my solo record called Lifeline. Jeff Miranoff is playing guitar, and I just dug the idea. I've been reading crazy books my whole life, but one in particular called the Urantia book talks about spirit gravity as being something we should try to cultivate. You know, the feeling of what's going on out there as opposed to down here, and and I, that idea played in my head a lot, so I wrote this piece around that idea. That's a great piece. I, I like all these pieces. I like the names of the pieces. There's just a certain, there's some kind of a thread that runs through all the material I've heard of yours. Not to say that it's all the same, but there's a certain vibe about them. No pun intended. You know, <laughs> you are a vibes player. But when I sit in a room and talk to you, I feel that same vibe. I think your music has a lot of your personality in it. It's a sign of a true artist. And it's been great to have you on the show. It's been an honor, in fact, and just a pleasure talking to you about your, your varied and your fascinating career. Thank you for being here, Craig. Oh, it's been great, Rick. It's uh, I'm very complimented you invited me over, oh. and I'm happy we got to play some music together. I recognized almost as soon as we plugged in that you've got some ears, oh. and you can feel that with people, and when you feel it, you're happy. That's very nice of you to say. I appreciate it. Feeling is mutual, and I hope we get to play some music again sometime together. That sounds like a plan. And come back anytime. I'd love to talk to you about this, this great career you've had. Thanks, Rick. You've been listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. Every week, engineered and produced by Rusty Johnson. Come back next week and see what we got cooking. I'm sure it'll be another fascinating artist of the Hudson Valley, and we'll see you then. Music.